Welcome to Essential Ethics and our next podcast in the series, Deciding with Children. I'm your podcast host, Professor John Massey, from the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre. I'm joined by Associate Professor Daryl Efron from the Department of General Medicine at the Royal Children's Hospital. Welcome, Daryl. Thanks, John. And I'm also joined by Professor Lynn Gillam, Academic Director of the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you, John. What level of involvement should young children have in their health care? When should we start talking with them and including them in medical decisions? And why might this be important? In our last podcast, we introduced the concept of deciding with children. We considered the ethical and human rights underpinning of involving children in matters that affect their life. In our context, that's health care. These are great ideals, principles and rights, but can we put them into practice? Luckily, Daryl is an experienced paediatrician, and so I'm looking forward to hearing his perspective on deciding with children. Daryl, when do you start talking to children about what's happening to them? Well, I think we're communicating with kids about what's happening to them in a healthcare setting all the time, even it's not just talking, you know, even younger kids, uh, infants, I think it's good to model and to practice uh, explaining what you're doing um, and asking permission from young kids, even uh, kids who can't necessarily talk back to you. I think that's just what comes naturally uh, in terms of demonstrating respect for kids and um, just getting along with kids and trying to make kids feel comfortable. I mean, our podcast, Daryl, is about deciding with children, and I think you've started at a really good place, which is that respect for children and and doing that. What about though? You know, starting to provide medical information to kids, which you know, I guess, might be part of that journey of of, of decision making. When when do you start talking about that with kids? Well, I think you know we're always making some sort of informal assessments of the kids' understanding of what's going on in the consulting room or or on the ward, you know, and that's based on what we know about their developmental status, you know, their age and their cognitions and so on, and how they communicate with us. So um, I'm not sure there's an answer to when do you do that. I think a general principle should be that as a default, we should always at least ask permission if we're going to be doing anything with a child, as I've explained, even with young uh, children. Um, And in terms of um, some medical um, activity, some procedure, for example, or some treatment, some medication that needs to happen to the child, I think from a younger age than many people might assume, we should be involving children at least in terms of explaining what we're doing and why we're doing it. I think there's actually a lot in there, especially asking permission, Daryl. I think we're going to circle back uh, to that. But I'd like just to think about child development and neurobiology, because I think that's a really important element as we think about the capacity of children, and particularly today, young children, to make decisions that involve their health care. 
Yeah, I think that's a good way to think about, to frame this whole conversation, John. So um, some basic points about uh, brain architecture and how it develops and how it underpins the concepts we'll be coming to in this conversation about involving children in decision-making in relation to their health. So firstly, brains are built from the bottom up, from the brainstem up to the cortex, from the simple to the complex. This is a programmed uh, sequence of events that begins in fetal life, continues very rapidly through the early years, but actually continues through childhood and adolescence, and now we know even into adult life. Um, the first few years are notable for incredibly rapid proliferation of neural circuitry, neural connections. Um, the brain grows very quickly. If you put a, a 12-month-old infant's head next to their mother's while they're having a cuddle, you, the size is almost the same. The head circumference of a 12-month-old infant is not very different from uh, their genetically, their biological parent. Um, But this needs to be followed by a critical process of pruning where redundant nerve circuits, uh, nerve neural connections are pruned to generate efficiencies. Um, And this is a necessary process. And in fact, one of the theories of uh, the pathology of autism, or some autisms at least, is uh, inefficient pruning um, based on some observations that some children with autism go through a period where their head is bigger than average. Um, it's not the whole autism story, but it's one of the, one of the theories about that. So um, this proliferation and pruning happens in a very programmed sequence. In terms of the, um, the observable functions uh, or developmental capacities that the children are developing, again, it's a very programmed sequence. So it's sensory in early infancy, vision, hearing, temperature, perception, touch, and so on. And those sensory uh, modalities underpin language development, which happens from, you know, about in the second half of infancy in particular starts to really kick off. So you need the sensory as a foundation for language and you need language development as a foundation for cognitive development. Now, cognitive development is complex and starts out with simple things like cause and effect, simple problem solving. But quite quickly through the early childhood years actually evolves into some of the concepts that will be important for our conversation today um, around more abstract concepts like identity formation, um, more abstract reasoning and and in fact moral development um, through childhood and into adolescence. So more complex circuits are built upon uh, simpler circuits. Plasticity, everyone talks about neuroplasticity these days, that's a very real concept, but um, it decreases, it diminishes over time. So that's why we talk about critical windows. This is a key concept in terms of public policy about supports for early childhood development and, and, and families in adversity is that we need to get in early and that's because of neuroplasticity and that's a very real uh, a real issue. Um, then I want to talk about environment. So Everything I've described is genetically determined, uh, generically in primates, but more specifically in individual differences between us. There are genetic determinations as to the sequence of events and the richness of the neural connections. But we know that the environment's really important in neurodevelopment as well. Um, and we, and that's thought to be that the stability, the robustness of, these neural, of the neural architecture and all the pathways um, is dependent very much on the, uh, on the environmental circumstances. And if they're less than ideal, then the architecture is more fragile. The fundamental environmental thing in infancy, of course, is the secure attachment to the primary caregiver. So, and that's that um, serve and return interaction between the infant and the primary caregiver, usually the mother, which is gaze, um, facial expression, vocalisations and gestures. And when that's going well and healthy, that happens very naturally. Um, If that doesn't go well, that can have 
really significant effects on the stability of the neural pathways. So I'll just finish by talking about some of the developmental tasks. I've touched on some of them, but infancy is all about um, secure attachment, really. That's the key developmental task of, of, of infancy, but in toddlerhood, it's kind of the opposite, and that starts to get into our territory for today, is autonomy and separation from parents in, uh, beginning, you know, sort of in the second year of life. Then there's the preschool period, which is, you know, magical thinking, fantasy play, and increasingly social development uh, in relation to other peers and other individuals. And then the primary school years, uh, which is where the, the cognitions become really quite complex. There's a lot of problem solving, a lot of uh, logical reasoning, relatively concrete thinking, but increasingly abstract through those years as well. Um, and identity formation, who am I, what are my preferences, what are my values, starts to happen through those primary school years and a self-concept. Um, so I think... The, the, when those things are all happening in that healthy sequence, um, then they're the, ta they're the developmental tasks that the, that the children are negotiating at those stages, which will inform what we're going to talk about, about involving children in decisions. John, can I ask Daryl a question at this point? Oh, I've, got I've got so many so too. No, no, get in there, Lynn. first, please. So, Daryl, you're saying this process continues into early adulthood. So what's the last bit that happens? Well, if I... Um, the skills and capacities that human beings have acquired ontologically uh, most recently are, acquire, are acquired the latest and are also most vulnerable to injuries from uh, any, any insult uh, to, to loss. So that's really those um, prefrontal cortex uh, and what's called the uh, frontostriatocerebellar circuits. Not by me. Not by you. So we're talking about things that you do know all about, Lynn, which is about judgment, about the capacity to self-regulate, the capacity to reflect and to think about um, your own behaviour in relation to other people and consequences and more distant goals as opposed to immediate rewards. Mm. All of those qualities that the psychologists tell us are critical for success. Not, I want that now, but I'll do my homework first and then maybe I'll get yeah. that. And can you give us a kind of general age range? Is that happening by 15 or does it not really happen until you're 21? Well, I think it continues to evolve, you know. Yeah. So I think you're seeing um, some of those skills developing from school entry, okay? That's why we say kids can sit down and attend to tasks and withhold immediate needs for, you know, increasing periods of time, 10, 15 minutes to work on something that's dull and boring, mm. a spelling sheet or something in the classroom, right. uh, even though they'd rather run around in the playground. Um, from, yeah, about school entry, that's why we put kids in those sorts of groups. But it continues to evolve right through to adult life. And um, the other thing is the white matter, the connectivity between different brain regions continues to evolve well into the um, third decade of life. Mm, well. I mean, there are many amazing things in that, uh, Lynn, uh, that, uh, as, as I said originally, we asked Daryl to speak because it's going to underpin what we, uh, what we do. And uh, what I liked, Daryl, was that, that supports our concept of deciding with, with children is that you've described some of those steps at a much younger age than I might have thought and, and, and where the judgment is starting to come in and, and even who am I and, and, and my values in, in, in sort of primary school, not just in you know, what Absolutely. we might call adolescence, which mm. is really important to what, to what we want to say. And then just towards the end then you mentioned that difference between immediate goals and capacity to appreciate more distant events. And I think that is something that in ethics we're often 
up against, the adult's ability to think long-term and think of best interests for what they think is the child's life project and the child's more immediate wishes. And, and I think actually as paediatricians, we, we want to value the child now, but also think about you know, what's going on later on. So that was you know, really helpful to think about. And then what you said in a very small line was that moral development was underpinned by this neurobiological development. And, and I think that's absolutely fascinating and builds to s- some other work which suggests that you know, even medications at time can alter moral behaviour. So I think that's not quite the topic for today, but it does underpin the biology of what's going on. Yeah, I'll just interrupt, John, just to say, perhaps the reason it seemed like a small line is that I'm a bit hesitant because there's a, I know that there, the not, is, not a lot is known about moral development in children. <laughs> I've explored this a little bit uh, with people in your sort of realm. Um, understanding is, our understanding scientifically about moral development is pretty primitive, actually. Uh, but for my clinical work uh, as a developmental paediatrician, it's pretty clear that moral development does start to develop either healthily or, or um, moral compasses that are not right. You can get you can see that from earlier than we you know well before adolescence. No question about and, that. And it also suggests though that the environment that us as healthcare workers are providing, contributing perhaps to that moral development. So when you say you're talking to the infant, you're explaining, you're undressing them, or you're talking to an older, you know, an older kid and explaining what might happen to them uh, for their immunisation, that potentially, they might be short interactions, but you perhaps are contributing to that development. So uh, I wanted to move to Lynn because I think I'm going to take this biology, but also think about how do you or ask, how do you think about the moral status mm. of children? Mm. So what Daryl's been talking about, um, I was reflecting on that question all the way through because one way of thinking about what value to accord to children is to think of them in terms of how like an adult are they. Uh, and then you get this account of increasingly like an adult over time. Why do we attach value to adults um, For some philosophers, we attach value to adults because of their capacity for autonomy in a really, I guess, um, high-level sense of of those skills you were talking about, Daryl, with reflection, judgment, being able to think through, to make a decision that takes into account all of your values, that takes into account whatever moral aspects need to be taken into account. And that's a reason... So for some philosophers, that's a reason for placing value on people. One of the problems with that view is that it doesn't seem to give us a good reason for placing value on an infant or a young child or an adult with an intellectual um, disability who doesn't have the capacity to do those things. And yet it doesn't seem right to say, oh, well, since they can't, they're not autonomous in that really strict sense, then they have no value at all. So I think your point, John, was really um, uh, significant uh, when you're talking about valuing the child both now and in the future, um, think we can think about valuing children on the basis that they are in the process of developing that capacity for autonomy, and where it's the kind of end product that we really mm. value. So we value children because they're getting closer to it. And yet, I think it's important also to focus on the child now. The child now is a person. A person's valued because they're because they're a person, not just because they have this um, complicated intellectual capacity to be autonomous 
in so, that sense. So somehow we need to both value them now for something they are now and also keep in mind where they're going. So, so Lynn, are you saying a person's a person no matter how small? A person is a person no matter how small. I absolutely agree with Horton on that one. Yeah, so whether, that's, whether there's a deeper ethical interpretation <laughs> than that, but I, I think it is a hard question and I'm not convinced the literature really answers it in, in a satisfactory way. Uh, but I guess part of what we're doing is understanding the moral status of children and then by actively valuing them, we're deciding with them and we're building mm-hmm. this wonderful circle uh, mm-hmm. which is underpinned by respect for children. Could so, I... John, can I, do you mind if I leap in again? Because I think the other question is moving from we value a child, we respect the child, to what, the ch- what, tells, what that tells us about how to act towards them. So we can, the yep. fact that we value a child doesn't yet tell us what to do. We have to figure that out. And what does that mean in terms of speaking with the child, involving the child in decisions or not? Which of those is respectful for the child? So I think there's two questions. Well, I think it's good to take that because we're now you know, thinking of our agency in relationship to children. And so, Daryl, you know, when we're thinking of this deciding with children, informing children, you know, what, what, what do children value? What, what do they like? What's important to them from your perspective? Well, children are incredibly varied as, as we are as adults. Um, but uh, I think one of the key things is to try to understand um, in terms of making decisions for children, clinical decisions where there might be, you might anticipate the child doesn't want to do something that we want them to do to uh, have a, you know, you've talked about the example of having a plaster on a broken arm or, or take a medication or something like that. Um, and this question of respect, respect for the child, um, it, it's all about how far do you take it, I suppose. So a common scenario is the child doesn't want to do what we think is best for them. Um, and I know you guys think about this all the time, what do you do in that situation? Is it respectful for the child there and then, this is an amateur ethicist talking here, to say, oh, you don't want to do it, okay, I won't Mm. do it? Mm. Or I really respect you, I know this is going to be good for you, but you won't be able to see that now. But down the track, if I talk to you as a 14-year-old, you'll Mm. understand why I've done that. Mm. Um, So because I respect you, Mm. I'm going to override your, uh, your wish not to do this and we'll go ahead and do it. Yeah, nicely captured, Daryl. That's exactly what I was thinking about. We value the child, but what does that tell us about Mm. how to act? It doesn't necessarily tell us to leave all decisions to children or to always do exactly what the child says. On the other hand, always going against or or, um, going against the child automatically seems problematic. So how do you negotiate Mm. it in practice? Well, I guess like a lot of things we do in clinical practice, and John, this will resonate with you, in my mind, I first of all try to be as clear as I can how important this thing is, this, this healthcare intervention. How important is it really, you know? And in my practice, prescribing psychotropic medications is one we can come back to as a, a common example. You know, it's not life and death, um, but I think it's, it might be good for the child. I think, I, or I, think or I strongly think it's going to be good for the child. And there's uh, varying degrees of certainty that I might have for this medical intervention. Um, and I guess the stronger I feel about it, the more I'll try and bring the child around, working with the child, 
um, enlisting the parent as an ally, mm -hmm. <laughs> and that doesn't always work, but <laughs> where that's possible. But then that's a bit, little bit dangerous morally, I suspect, because you can be seen to have the, the big people ganging up on the little powerless yeah. person. Yeah. So none of this is straightforward. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's really important because I think what you're doing is, you know, you're doing that primary thing of, of considering the young person. You know you're going to have to override their wishes. If, but if they say no. If they say no. So, you know, if you look at the American Academy of Paediatrics and one of their papers about this, they sort of mention that, look, you know, if you're going to override them, don't give them any you know, you go and give them a role because you're just going to override them and, and upset them. And I think that that's not right because I think if you don't ask them and don't have some degree of involvement, you won't necessarily know you're overriding them or in what ways that you're mm. over, so, overriding So, John, you're them. tackling the question of should we give the child a choice, offer the child a choice if we don't think there really is a choice. Yeah, no, you shouldn't be offering them the choice. You're not ceding decisional authority to them. And so that circles back to what Daryl talked about, asking permission to undress the you know, the child and examination room. And I think that Daryl probably doesn't mean that he's totally asking their yeah. so permission, delicate... but maybe he, maybe he is. But I think in other circumstances, it's about providing information, it's about supporting the child. And then as you've indicated, Daryl, there'll be times when they will, you'll know that they don't want to do that. But you've involved them in the decision. And I think that starts to get towards moral injury that might occur if you mm. override them. And as you said, Daryl, mm. if there's the adults overriding them all the time too, and if you've got a chronic disease and that just keeps happening, that sets up some problems later on too. So, Daryl, can I ask you to comment on that question of offering the child a choice? Because not there is in the end they won't have a choice. Yeah, I don't think I don't think that's the right way to frame it. For most, I mean, there might be some situations no choice, and I've heard you talk about the, again this plaster one that you spoke about recently, a blue plaster or a red plaster. Those sorts of choices where available are good. You know, it gives the child a sense of control. But I think there are many medical decisions where it's not really a choice. Again, come back to where I was before. If you've made a decision that this treatment is 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 important for the child's health and well-being, but you pick up pretty clearly the child doesn't want to do that, then it's not a choice. It's not about a choice. It's about how you try and bring the child around to see the value in the intervention, okay? which is not straightforward. But I think it starts with something you've touched on, John, which is sharing information. I think there's things that don't always happen that we don't always do that can, you know, very simple things that can make quite a difference. Just explaining what you're going to do and reason why you're going to do that. Um, Probably we do that most of the time, but probably not all the time. Uh, and we probably rush it sometimes. And we probably don't listen to the child's response. And sometimes mm. just reassuring the child, they might have two, two questions. And they might be things that we hadn't thought, we hadn't realised they were concerned about or worried about or misunderstood. If you just take a few minutes, often you can make the situation go more smoothly than you might have predicted. Not always, but <laughs> often. <laughs> Lynn, do you think that uh, preferences, which is what we might think about for the younger mm. child, red cast, blue cast, left arm, right arm for a procedure, is the same as decision making? So having a preference is part of the process of making a decision. So if all you have is information and it's just sitting there, you have no way to choose between options if you don't have some preferences. So that's clearly part of it. Um, but in terms of taking full responsibility for making a decision about your own life, 
you need a bit more than a preference. And I guess this is particularly this developmental feature of, of children that makes us think we shouldn't necessarily act on their preferences because they don't yet have the capacity to uh, look forward and see that preference as part of a bigger picture in their life going ahead. Uh, so again, philosophers, when talking about autonomy for adults, talk about the idea of um, uh, knowing what your values are, that they are authentically, authentically your own values, uh, that you've reflected on them, and that when you make a decision, the decision you make fits in with your broader life project. Uh, but Daryl, when I'm saying that, uh, is there any sense in which children can do that? Do children have a broader life project? Can they see the uh, a choice that they might make now as part of a bigger, longer pattern, or are they much more focused mm, on I, the? I think that's difficult. Now. You know, even even in adolescence, I think it's and perhaps in some ways even more so in adolescence where their social world gets so complex and uh, there's peer influence and a whole range of other things that, mm. that, that actually often lead them very focused in the here and now as opposed to the, the pre-adolescent girl we often talk about who wants to save the world and she, can, she talks about the future, you know, 30, oh, 50 years ahead. But I think adolescents typically find that quite difficult. And that is a really interesting thought. So your capacity for autonomy in that sense might... Go backwards a bit. I've just made that up, but it's just, it's just, <laughs> just to think plausible. about my patients. You know, you see the turbulence of adolescence. Yeah. I think makes it quite difficult for many yeah. of them to actually uh, think about distant goals. And yet, that's a time at which they very much care about their own agency uh, and being taken seriously and having a say. Yeah, and I think what what this points to is is the stability of of the value systems of children and adolescents. Mm which is something I know nothing about, but I think it's an important <laughs> thing to consider because um, all I'd say is I'm not sure it's always stable, you know, and I think as clinicians, John, you'd be familiar with this, we sometimes need to have a same, the same conversation, you know, next month or, or next week, depending on the urgency of the problem, um, so that the, the child and the family can consider what the meaning of what we're proposing and they might reflect and, and, you know, that's a good thing. It's a good strategy to do if you've got time mm. to buy. Um, it's a good strategy, actually, and I, I often do that in difficult situations. Well, this is what I suggest. I can see, you know, you're not sold on the idea at the moment, but there's, this is what I'm suggesting. This is the reasons why. Why don't we talk about it again in two weeks? And mm. I mean, I think when we do our podcast later with Mick Creedy and talk about adolescent decision-making, I think that'll be a really interesting to think to see how that um, plays out. Daryl, you first on this question, then I'd like Lynn's ethical reflection, and it's you've talked about doing things because uh, they're nice, or and, and and sometimes doing things because it makes the process go better. Um, do you mean the process going better for you or for the child? Treating children respectfully, uh, I think, is important in clinical practice, not just to be decent, uh, not just because to value them as a human being and, and to be kind, but equally because you're more likely to get better outcomes, better treatment adherence. Um, and that sounds pretty obvious, um, but I think holding those two ideas in mind, those two related ideas just underpins the important, you know, that, it, that it's, it's good clinical practice, not just to be a decent uh, clinician, 
um, but, to, but to move the child in the direction, their health care in the direction, in a positive direction. I think there's a couple of ways to, to think about that. One might be that the, the first considering the child is, is respect for persons. The second part of it being you know, best interest being served by it going mm. well. But, Lynn, mm. there's some other terminology I think that's really helpful, mm. which is thinking of it, that the difference between intrinsic good and instrumental good. Would mm. you like to share that yeah, with sure. us? Um, uh, so really exactly mapping what Daryl was saying. When you think about respecting the child because they're a human being or a person, you're attributing int- intrinsic value to the child and it actually doesn't matter what the situation is or what their preferences are. Um, or even whether the procedure will go better engaging them or not. You're respecting them because they're a child. Then the instrumental value is um, when that serves another goal. So engaging with the child, as you you were rightly saying, uh, can serve the goal of getting the procedure done that needs to be done in a way that's um, not distressing for the child that they feel engaged with and so that when they come back next time and need another procedure, they're more willing to engage in it um, so that, that's an instrumental reason for engaging with the child that it actually helps the, the procedure be done. I guess the kind of third thing, or maybe a second part of the instrumental reason, is that it's easier for everybody else as well, uh, which matters, but it probably matters more that it's easier for the yeah, child. Yeah, you know, I was going to think of another side angle to the instrumental as I was listening to you is um, bringing... If, if the parents see that you care about the child and you're respecting ah, the child, yep. they're more likely to trust you yep. as the doctor and uh, come on board moving forward. Are we allowed to tackle a difficult topic, John? Uh, this is essential ethics. We're difficult topics. We eat for breakfast. Lynn. All righty. So let's have a go at eating this one for breakfast. Um, maybe sometimes the parents don't mind so much that you respect their child. Maybe they're more focused on the outcome of we need to get this vaccination done, we need to get this procedure done. Have you ever found yourself in situations where you want to negotiate and talk with the child more than the parents want you to? Uh, I was thinking of a a, sort of a related thing, not so much about talking to the child more, but yes, I'll answer that and then I'll come to the other point in my head, which I think is relevant. So yes, absolutely. So um, uh, in developmental practice, we... um, often speak to children alone without the parents, uh, pre-adolescent children, obviously adolescents, but pre-adolescent children. So even younger than adolescents. So we're talking about, what, eight, Primary school age kids, yep, yep. And it's really valuable. But sometimes the parents are surprised and sometimes the parents don't particularly like that. Right. Uh, And so not very often, but occasionally, I've had occasion, had one not so long ago actually, where the parent didn't want me to be alone with the child, which... Things alarm bells, actually. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's valuable to us because we often get a less, a less restricted, less inhibited child who can tell us. Not necessarily. Um, I mean, it might be that they they open up and disclose about things that are happening in the home that they couldn't say in front of the parent. Mm. That happens sometimes. Protective sort of things. Um, but just for them to generally speak more f- openly and freely, it's often really valuable, and you get a more nuanced understanding of what of the child's mm. perspective on the on the issues. Mm. Yeah. But the parents may not see their child in that way. That's or they may say that their role is to even protect the child from that. Yeah, there's all there's all sorts of reasons why parents may not be totally comfortable with that. And it might just be that they weren't expecting it, you know, mm. I suppose. But sometimes you get a sense there are potentially somewhat darker reasons why the mm. parents may not want mm. to. The other example I was going to give, though, from my practice, where which I think relates to what you're saying, uh, Lynn, though you may frame this differently, and that is 
um, monitoring of side effects of medications in children. And I'll give an example that happens from time to time when we use stimulant medications to treat children with ADHD, which are usually well tolerated, usually helpful uh, to improve symptoms and usually well tolerated apart from suppressing appetite, which happens most of the time and you've just got got to wear that. But occasionally it causes cognitive dulling. The child's lights are turned out. They're not the same child. And usually if that happens, which is about one in 10, the parents don't like it. They say, they call you up. Why did you, this drug doesn't work for my child? Just turn the lights out. I don't like it. That's what you would want parents to do. But sometimes the parents bring the child in a few weeks after you've started the medication and the child looks immediately different to you. They're quieter. They're not engaged. They're much less animated. Yeah. And you say to the parents, how are things going? And expecting them to describe what you can see. And they say, oh, good. He's quiet now. He's not causing any trouble. Uh, and, uh, interesting. And you say, so is this, and you point to the child, is this what he's like? At home now? Yeah, he's really good. He doesn't answer back. He's uh, don't like that. So that that's fascinating to it me. It is, and isn't I, it? And, you know, I've had a number of situations where I've said, look, th- that's not what we're trying to achieve. That's not right. When We have to stop that medicine, you know. And so where does the child's view come into that, Daryl? So well, if, when the, that happens to the child, does the child get to say how they feel about the it? The child always gets to say how they feel about yeah. it, yep. Or sorry, that's what you're wanting to achieve. Always. No, that's what I demand any time. I'm talking about stimulus and ADHD yep, now. Yep. Yep. Uh, or or other, uh, other medicines that might alter how the child feels, where the subjective experience is, so, is, is, is obviously a key part of, uh, of potential benefits and potential side effects. So it's really important to ask the child, when you start the medication, to tell the child that next time I want you to tell me how it feels and then next time you see them to ask the child in different ways, how does it feel? Mm. Do you feel different? Do you feel weird? Do you feel strange? So in the situations you've described, that it's opening up a space for the child to say something different to what their parents are saying. Yeah, and to what their parents have observed and to what their parents may know. And it's not uncommon that when you ask the child, they'll talk about a side effect that the parent didn't know they were experiencing because the parent hadn't asked. Right. Interesting. So I guess the question, if you don't ask, you don't know. So, Daryl, how do you handle that when the parent wants to keep going with the medication, are are you then making the decision? Are you drawing the child out to say how they feel and so it becomes obvious that it's the child's interpretation? Well, that's already happened in this situation and, um, yeah, it's uncomfortable. Um, And, um, you know, then, you know, as you have that conversation, you know, it's pretty clear to the parent that it's not right and so it's, it's, it's actually not... It's it's a bit uncomfortable. But the actual the decision making is not that sure. difficult because I say to the just look at the parents and say you know that's an unacceptable side effect. I'm not comfortable with that. That's not work. This medicine is not working for your child. Let's think about what else we can do. Oh, Lynn, that really is though deciding with children, isn't it? it? Yes, and I think it's a really good example of how it's deciding with children without leaving the ultimate decision with the child. So, Daryl, you didn't say when this happens, I turn to the child and say, okay, child. You decide, you choose whether or not to stay on the medication. The way you've described it, you actually took the decision, but the reason for the decision was very much the child's the child's voice, what the child was saying to you about their yeah. experience. So it points to the concept of medical medical leadership or people use other sort of synonyms there, Lynn. And it's a matter of gathering imp- relevant data and we all weight data p- data pieces differently but you know in this sort of work we want information from the parents the teachers and the child Mm. and they're all important Mm. 
and they might be discrepant. Mm. And we need to find, we, as a clinician, our role is to weigh all that up and, and decide, you know, whether that treatment is doing more good than harm. But I mean, I think it's the special work of paediatricians, isn't it? It's, it's to bring the voice of the child forward. And I think it's easy for deciding the children to be misconstrued. If you just read it, you might think, oh, well, that's just ceding decisional authority to children and they sh- either shouldn't have it or slightly nuanced, not fair for children to have to make these yeah. big decisions. And that's not what we're about. What we want to do is bring the voice forward and have their reasonable concerns and thoughts included. And, Daryl, we, we could go the other way. What happens with kids with ADHD or, or some kids with autistic spectrum disorder when you're actually deciding to put them on medication? How does that conversation look like? Uh, well, I've touched on a couple of elements of that. So one is um, explaining why people are concerned about the child and the child often doesn't have many concerns about how they're going, although mm. sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. I mean, there's every variation in the book, but there are situations where the child's not particularly concerned. So we need to present to the child. I mean, the child knows that they've been taken to a doctor, so someone's concerned, but mm. I open that, I overt that conversation. I often say, do you know, in fact, often I'll start a conversation, do you know why mum's brought you in to see me today? And sometimes they don't know at all. They've just been put in the car. <laughs> um, but once I'm getting to the point about, you know, having made an assessment and a diagnosis and a suggested treatment plan, um, then it's where we were before, sharing information, explaining in developmentally appropriate terms w- what the concerns are, using a language that might be meaningful to the child. But using a using um, language, it doesn't really matter what the words are. It's about what the problem is and why people are concerned in terms of the child's function, in terms of making friends or making ac- uh, progress with their learning or, you know... And does that usually work? I mean, do kids then have some buy-in? Are they involved in the Yeah, decision? I mean, you know, we've got to tap into what we think is important to the child. So it might be about making friends or being able to play basketball or whatever. Uh, so, you know, obviously we find a way in that's going to be of value to the child. But, yeah, you can... I think... Almost always you can find a, 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 an explanation of the problem that resonates with the child, which leads to an explanation for the suggested treatment that will hopefully have some meaning to the child. Mm. Yeah, you've actually answered a question I asked earlier, uh, which was about what, what do children value? And they, you know, what you've just listed is some of the things that children value. And I think that's really important to consider and obviously personalise it for, for that individual. In the work you do... Daryl, it's really, you couldn't make that child take the medication if they didn't want to. You actually need the child's cooperation. And this is back to the instrumental idea. Um, but in other areas of paediatric practice, particularly where if it's a, you know, once-off surgery or something like that, um, it is possible, I guess, to force a child to do something without getting that buy-in and getting their cooperation. Do you think there's something particular to the area of paediatrics in you work that you work in that... You, um, you and your colleagues focus more on bringing the child along or d- do you see that working across general paediatrics in general? I think general the field's really evolved. And John, I'm interested in your views on this, but, you know, we now have a department in this hospital and I'm assuming it's similar things in other um, major, at least major centres. Uh, internationally, I think they call it child life therapy. I always get the language mixed up. But, you know, um, I think it's wonderful that, that, that there's a general acceptance that there are some things that we need to do for kids that are that are really distressed, predicted, you can predict are going to be distressing and upsetting and they mm. won't want to do, but are important to be done, like a surgical procedure. Um, 
if there's something that the child needs to, needs to go through medically that's important, you know, I think it's it's wonderful that, you know, over our time in, in paediatrics, John, we've, we've seen a real shift from, you know, I mean, my first job here was in cardiac surgery and I can still remember, I won't say the name of the boy now, I can still remember this boy's face vividly um, where every day my job was to get blood from him because he was on anticoagulants, had to, had to monitor his levels. I and mean, it was horrible. We had him in the treatment room. We had to hold him down. He'd be screaming. It would go on, you know, it was hard to find his veins mm. and it would be 15, 20 minutes every oh. morning. It was just horrible. So we've evolved in a relatively short period of time, I mm. guess, and there are now, you know, uh, a whole range of strategies that are, that are very psychologically based and nuanced and individualised for that child's situation with a lot of preparation and so on, um, which is to totally to address the problem you've, you've, uh, you've raised, uh, Lynn, about um, having to do things against the kids' wishes. And sometimes mm. you just need to, but we can do it much better than we used to. Mm. Yeah, and so that, I guess it's a different philosophy of the child, a different way of seeing the child, isn't it? That um, moving from, well, we can force them, so we will, to trying to engage them and bring them along, even though we could force them. I mean, and I think what we see at the children's is where that's Super important becomes in chronic disease where we're going to have ongoing involvement. But actually, when you when you think about it, um, people are going to have disease and illness and things done all through their life. And while it might be a one-off event for your tooth extraction, your arm resetting or something, that might set their whole life's healthcare project back if it goes badly. Mm. And so uh, things need to go well, both out of respect for the person and instrumentally. Mm. But if we accept that we have moved, and I absolutely agree that we've moved and we're putting the, the child into the, into the centre of our care, into child and family-centred care, what about the next step? So it's really the same question to both of you. Do we have a moral obligation to promote children's decision-making or involvement in decision-making? And perhaps how far does that extend? So, Daryl, I might take you first from a practical clinical perspective and then Lynn, the moral perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't have thought of it used in my head language like moral obligation. To me, it's just um, being uh, a decent human being and a good clinician, you know. So, you know, people might use different language around that, but I guess I'd answer yes if, if, you, if you put it to me in those terms, but I don't think about it as I'm fulfilling a moral obligation. I think about it, I'm just doing my job well on a good day, you know. <laughs> Does it feel worse to say, is there something bad about thinking of it as a moral obligation? <laughs> I'm just looking at the expression on your face. Does it feel yeah. like you you have to do it, but you yeah, don't really does, want yeah, to? Yeah, it does feel it's... a bit like sort of eating your muesli, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> don't know why. It's just, it's just, just something about that language that, that did put me off, didn't it? Uh, don't yeah. know why, but uh, I think it, it's probably just a term to describe what I think good clinical practice yeah. should involve. Because I think what that term really means is this is an important thing to do. Uh, it's valuable, but it does, to call it an obligation, does say, and you should do it even if you don't want to. But I imagine for you and your colleagues, you do want to, so it doesn't feel like an obligation because you want to do it anyway. Yeah, I think we want to and we aspire to and we sometimes yeah. do and we sometimes don't. Yeah. But, you know, you feel better on the way home if you have, you know, because you feel like you've done a better, better job. Yeah. So I was thinking too in terms, though, that it might lead to some coaching, coaching of the kids, coaching of the parents to coach the kids in terms of bringing them forward, uh, augmenting their decision-making capacity, thinking of 
the future, Daryl? Yeah, I think that's right, John. Again, whether the language is coaching or modelling, I think coaching is actually is quite a good word. Um, one, there's multiple elements. That one, modelling of the of of uh, respect and um, trying to understand children's perspective, I think, is really important for doctors to do for parents, particularly you know parents who've come from traumatic backgrounds or, or backgrounds where they just haven't had the space to, or, or their own experience of of, uh, of childhood and how they were parented just doesn't hasn't uh, permitted them to think in that way. Um, so I think there's that modelling aspect, uh, but then I think. Another aspect of that is probably coaching the child, which is actually just bringing the child in. They probably haven't, most kids haven't had the experience of being asked to be involved in these sorts of decisions. They're quite, you know, they're challenging decisions in everyday life at school and so on, you know. Um, the stakes aren't as high. Um, so it's actually quite confronting for some kids when, mm. you, when you involve mm. them in these conversations. But if, if they can stand up to it and if you persist, they enjoy it. And, and as you say, John, for chronic illness, it's so important to involve them over time for so many reasons. And you haven't used the term, but you've alluded to the idea of sort of medical trauma and post-traumatic medical stress. And it's a very real entity and we see that. Daryl, there's just been so much here in this podcast and I'm so grateful for you to spend time with us on essential ethics. Daryl, I mean, we've started with the neurobiology and then we've heard from your ideal clinical practice and you know and I think it's wonderful for you to acknowledge that we all should acknowledge that maybe we don't always get it right all the time but at least that's what we're aspiring to and I think that's part of what the podcast series about deciding with children is to try and bring this to the fore of people's work and understand what it is that they're doing for yourself I think intrinsically you're just doing it but more than just because you're a nice guy, but because it actually is the right thing to do for mm. the child and it helps, helps us get good results. So, Daryl, thank you very much for joining us on Essential Ethics. Pleasure. Enjoyable. And, Lynn, thank you very much for bringing the ethical insights to the practical insights Daryl has shared with us. Thanks, John. As always, it's been a really fantastic conversation. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to give us a rating on your podcast app and don't forget to share it with your friends and colleagues. Essential Ethics is brought to you through funds raised by the Friends of the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Auxiliary. And if you'd like to join the Friends, please look them up online. If you'd like to find out about some more of the activities of the Children's Bioethics Centre, including our annual conference, which is held in the first week of September each year, look us up on www.rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. This podcast was produced and recorded in the studios of Creative Services at Royal Children's Hospital. Essential Ethics, be inspired. Be inspired.